Welcome, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're visiting with Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to Keith Steinbaum, the author of a murder mystery called You Say Goodbye. So stay tuned. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Keith! Laurel, nice to be here today. I think I want to start with hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Don't ask me to sing, though, okay? I won't ask you to sing, although maybe in the next interview, you and I are going to do a duet, because we kind of talked about that, but we'll get to that later. Keith sure. Steinbaum, where are you coming from right now? I live in Los Angeles. That's where, I'm, that's where I'm talking to you from today. Awesome. And we hope that we have great internet connection, because we have a storm going on in Leadville. But Keith, you can introduce yourself best to our listeners. So who is Keith Steinbaum? Well, the Keith Steinbaum relevant to this interview, um, I have written two books. Uh, I have been involved as far as making a living. I've been involved in the landscape industry for over 30 years. And my first book that I wrote called The Poe Consequence, actually there were definitely parts of that story that were relevant to my landscape work, uh, having worked in a lot of low-income housing areas and a lot of gang-affiliated neighborhoods, the inspiration for my book, that book, uh, came from those those years. Now I've written a, a second novel, You Say Goodbye. It's a, as I refer to it as a Beatles-themed whodunit murder mystery. And for those who do know Beatles songs, and as your voice showed at the beginning of this interview, they have a song called Hello, Goodbye. And there is a line the second line, or you say hello and I say goodbye. The name of the book, You Say Goodbye, is Beatles-related. And the, um, the story is that a, the murder of an ex-rock star's girlfriend leads a detective to conclude that the perpetrator is not only a renowned serial killer, but somebody that the singer knows. And that's the premise of the story. And that's a little horrifying, isn't it? Even just that idea that a serial killer could be someone you know. Sure. It's kind of fun as an author. It's not particularly uh, a likable idea in real life, I suppose, but as an author and in a fictional story, it was fun. Right. So this is, you've written a story within a story in You Say Goodbye. Could you tell me how you discovered Alexandra Scott and tell me a little bit about her story? Because there's a, there's a really heart-wrenching story that goes along with the murder mystery in your book. I occasionally like to read the obituary sections in my newspaper, local newspaper, not because of some kind of sick, warped gene inside my head, but because I find a lot of lives that have been led by people are fascinating, very interesting. I don't necessarily look at them for inspirational ideas for writing, but yes, on one particular summer day, um, I looked at the obituary section and came across a picture that was half the page of the obituary section of a little girl selling lemonade at her lemonade stand. And of course, all of us, when we look at a picture in an obituary section of a young girl, we're all drawn to it. And so you're, you're thinking to yourself, my gosh, what happened? What's this about? It turns out that Alexandra Scott uh, was a cancer victim and at the age of four, outside of her house in a suburb of Philadelphia. She started raising money for childhood cancer research. And she dies at the age of eight. And in those four years, Alex's Lemonade Stand became a charitable organization in all 50 states, in Canada, and in parts of Europe. Now, I had never heard of Alex's Lemonade Stand. I'd never heard of the charity. But after reading this, I was... A mixture of emotions overcame you. Of course, it was so tragic. It was so sad. But it was also ridiculously inspiring. Uh, and with the, the, the bravery of this little girl who I obviously didn't know and didn't know about. And I wound up cutting out that picture and putting it on my office wall in my house 
as a perspective reminder that no matter how bad I may have it on a particular day, I may think I may have it, it's, it doesn't compare. And um, that picture of this little girl, Alexandra, gave me, gave me strength. And it may sound corny. I used to talk to this photo <laughs> as if she was my little girl, as if my little friend, I should say. And, and eventually, I started coming up with an idea that th- this character, th- this person needs to have something written about her in a story, perhaps, that I could write. And in time, I came up with a contrasting character because you needed a yin and a yang. You needed some kind of feedback to go back and forth. And it turns out that um, because of my past history, obviously, I was no rock star, of course, but I was a song lyricist for many years. And I, I had minor success and major frustrations for most of those years. And so I decided to take a character that felt that the, his best days were behind him, that he was bitter, and he didn't really have the true appreciation for life that this little girl struggling for her life had. So I decided to come up with these two characters as that story within the story, as you say. And for a while, I, I originally wanted to have it to be a novel, a, long, a, a, a novel. Then I decided, no, I want to specifically focus on these two characters. So I turned it into a short story. And the short story was called Mr. Music and the 14th Laker. And when you read the story, you'll understand why I came up with that title. And then I decided to rewrite that short story, and it changed. But it was still a short story. And eventually, I said no. This story needs more. It needs, it needs a, a, a more the meat on the bone approach. And then the concept of a murder mystery came in, and I decided to have the larger whodunit murder mystery part take hold, while at the same time really having these two characters interact throughout the book, where the murder mystery does involve these two, and yet the relationship with these two people is very strong. And one more thing I'd like to say, Lowell, that I, I have found in, in reviews that I've read of the book, and fortunately, most of the reviews have been pretty good, and I'm flattered by it and very gratified by it. But I've noticed that there are people that when they pick up a book and they see it's a murder mystery, there are those murder mysteries where the characters mainly are behind the scenes as far as emphasis on them, because your focus is more on the murder mystery itself. And perhaps in the murder mystery book, there's several murderers, and it's really a case of following the murderer and perhaps the detective. And that's the emphasis. That's one type of murder mystery, and those are great. And I've read them, and you've read them, and many people have read them, and, and they're fine. They're great. They're, can be, they can be very exciting, good books. On the other hand, mine is an equal balance. It's an equal emphasis. And anyone that's going to be reading my book should know that it's a story of a relationship as very, well as a murder mystery. Very much so on the relationship issue. And you hinted about your short story title, The Mr. Music, uh, The Little Girl. And I think I can say this. She uses nicknames for people. And I found that very endearing. How did you come up with that idea? <laughs> it's just a creative writer's imagination. It, no specific reason why. It was, it was, like I said, very, very endearing. And if you're not familiar, listeners and visitors, with Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, look it up. I'll have a link to it on my website. And please watch the video. Have a tissue. It's stunning. It's incredible. And the fact that you stumbled upon this in a newspaper and it morphed into this murder mystery relationship between stodgy crusty guy and this sweet thing is really unique, unique way of putting these two together. So yeah, check that out for sure. So you mentioned that you got the idea of the serial killer's name, you know, the the Beatles murder mystery. You said that the press comes into play typically with naming serial killers, which I had never thought of. And so I wanted you to to tell me how you learned about that. And then, and then a bigger question is, did you know who done it from the beginning of your book? <laughs> In answer to your first question, I had to find that out myself. It, I, I assumed it was the police that generally named serial killers, particular monikers. And, and 
<laughs> no, I found out, and now it makes sense to me because the press, they can be sensationalistic in stories and in, um, because it makes things maybe larger than life as far as what they report. And that includes names of serial killers. And it's, it can be cold hearted because the subject matter is very serious. But if there is something that to, to create a reputation for somebody, they, they get a nickname for it, whether it be something on a positive end, like a, a sports athlete, Ted Williams back in the day was known as the splendid splinter. That's great. It's, it's a positive, fun thing to think about. For an athlete. On the other hand, now we're talking about a serial killer. But again, names are given, nicknames are given. So that's where I came up with it. Now, regarding the Beatles, I grew up with the Beatles like so many in my era. And I kind of purposely wanted to do something radical regarding the Beatles because the Beatles are seen as such a upbeat, happy, go lucky period of time. And I, I decided to just spit in the face of it and say, ah, oh, the heck with it. Let's just do something that people may not particularly like. <laughs> it were it absolutely worked, and I think that's hilarious. <laughs> Back to the, did you know who done it from the beginning? So, no. It, oh no, no, I didn't know. I, I had several of the characters or possibilities, and I just had to find it. I had to find which one I wanted it to be, and and then work from there to try and make it as much of a whodunit situation as possible. But I did not know from the beginning. I, it was kind of a, so, a, random, a random choice. So this, this blows my mind because, again, you know, reading certain murder mysteries, and I recently interviewed Sarah Lynn Richard, and she's got a million characters, and, you know, and I, I asked her the same question. And it, it's fascinating to me that you can write, well, maybe it's not so much of a surprise, but you can write a murder mystery and maybe not know who done it until what point. So at what point did you make your decision who it was going to be? I would say I was about at least a third of the way through the book. Uh, I wanted to get characters introduced. And then all of a sudden I started thinking about other characters that could be introduced to make them also possibilities. So the story built, it started with those two main characters and then it organically you know, transcended from there to, to outlying characters. And, and, then, and then I brought the characters back into a closer realm of, of the storyline. You know, it wandered for a while before I found exactly what I wanted to do. And then did you have to go back and tweak what you did in the first third? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Sure, sure. That's, but that's part of the writing process, of course. Right. I want to ask you who, who done it, who did you think done it? Initially, but I'm not going to because readers have to figure that out themselves when they read it. <laughs> but that's fascinating to me. And again, writing fiction, oftentimes a character will surprise you. They'll say something to you that you hadn't planned, and it can take your story in a whole different direction. So I think writers should be okay with that, be okay with the surprises that come along while you're writing. That's one of the beauties of writing, and I've discovered that. I've only written two novels, but I've spent thousands of hours on the two of them, which literally. And it's something you discover that your characters really do grow and develop personalities. And for those who don't write, but who like to read, oftentimes it's going to be a very common situation where as the characters develop personalities, you may, for example, you may have them near the end of the book having a particular action or saying certain things and then you need to go back to the beginning of the story before they truly developed that personality in your head to fix and to tweak what you had them say or do back then to make it consistent. You may not know what near the end of the book, what they're going to be like when you started writing about them at the beginning of the book. This is very, very true. And editing and rewrites, oh my goodness, they're, they're important. Yeah, that's, that's true. You did an interview with the Right Way Cafe back in September of 2018, and you mentioned this just a little bit, about, a bit ago about the meat on the bones writing, and you said that that adds intrigue. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea of meat on the bones and how you use that in, in your novel, You Say Goodbye? I wanted to, meat on the bones, basically what I wanted to do was, I was trying to put myself in place of a reader who, I, of course, I want to be interested in my book. And the short story 
was mainly centered, when it was a short story, Mr. Music and the 14th Laker, it was mainly centered on the two characters, Sean Hightower and Kaylee Michaels. And I, I mean, I'm proud of the short story. However, I wanted to do something that would bring more of an audience, a, a larger audience to participate in my book, where I want them to enjoy the relationship, the development of it, and what happens with Sean and Kaylee, of course. I also wanted to challenge myself as well to uh, do something to make it more of a broad uh, attraction to, to readers. And there, I wanted to come up with a, a murder mystery because a lot of people enjoy reading a good murder mystery. So that, that's why I, I, I wanted to, to add to it. That's all. Just add to the relationship. Need is fi- filling it out. Have you done anything with a short story? No, not yet. No. Do you, do you write short stories or do you have any plans for our short stories? I've written short stories, uh, not at the moment, not at the moment, you know, but we'll see what happens in the future. Okay. All right. You made another comment in that same interview where something about the idea of writing without a money goal. And I guess my question is, can authors who publish books and who want to publish books, can we truly divest ourselves from that goal? (laughs) I think that we should put it in the, fantasy uh, department where <laughs> fantasies, some fantasies do come true. And, and, and wouldn't it be lovely if they do more often for, for most of us. But for those of us who do write, our main goal has to be to write for, because you have something to say. Black Opal Books likes to say because you have a story to tell. And writers have that inside of them. They want to say something that's on their mind, whether it be an upbeat story, a, a, you know, a series of stories involving a character, or in my case, the two books I've written both came from emotional points of views that were both very important for me to offer as a release. And that's where my, these two books came from. And I, I'm looking for that next inspiration to really want me to get back to that computer, to, to get me obsessed again with saying something and wanting a story. And, and I hope that comes in the near future, but I can't force it. I read that you are motivated by the weightier side of life. Yes. And so you originally turned to poetry as a means of dealing with pain. Why poetry? And, and not say short story or any other expression. When I'm going into details, in my, when I was 15 years old, there was a, a terrible situation that occurred uh, in, in my personal life. And, you know, in, in situations like that, you can't, this isn't a pre-planned thing. When, when it happened, and there was something inside of me that needed an expression of somehow, some sort. Fortunately, I didn't turn to some drug addiction. Uh, you know, I, I, I kept it healthy. And uh, poetry just seemed to come out for me as that release. And it was negative poetry. I, it, was, it wasn't sweet poetry at all, let me tell you. I think my first two lines were, Welcome to a world of hell with all its hates, diseases, and prejudices. And that's certainly not going to make the Disney Channel. <laughs> but it was something that uh, became a very important part of that period of my life. And as a song lyricist, I suppose it would make sense that poetry would be the format that you would go to. As a teacher, I would also tell my students when we started a poetry unit and they'd all moan and groan and say, oh, I hate poetry. I would talk to them about rap and talk to them about song lyrics and how that's poetry. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm wondering if you had any mentor or teacher along the way who encouraged you with poetry or who looked at any of your work and gave you that boost? Yeah, I did. I did have, yes, there was a high school teacher and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember her name. I would like to give her a shout out, but I did show her. Uh, my works. And I had a girlfriend at the time who was very supportive as well. And I didn't share with, with really anybody else. And I'll tell you a funny story. I wrote poetry through high school and I never shared it with my parents. And I'm, you know, my dad's passed away, but my mom's still alive. And I, I was very close with my folks. 
but I never, I never shared that with them. And uh, through college, eventually the lyric writing, I should say the poetry writing morphed into a lyric desire for, for writing lyrics. And I would take songs by particular artists, the Beatles perhaps, or the Moody Blues, or people from my era, Cat Stevens, and I would take their melodies and I would rewrite the melodies with new lyrics by me. And I really got to like it uh, to a point that when I graduated college, I wanted to become, attempt to become a professional song lyricist. And my dad probably thought I wanted to go into his business. And in a sense, I needed his okay that I was going to be trying this. And before I went away to college for my final part of my final year, I left my book of poetry and lyrics with him with a note saying, I would like you to please read this because this is something I really want to try and do in my life. And uh, I, was, I was a little nervous about how he would react because in a sense, I needed his blessing for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within maybe, maybe the next day, maybe it, was the, maybe it was the next day, I get a call and he said to me, he used to call us all kid. He said, hey, kid. He says, kid. I think you're really talented. I think you really should try this. And it was a big uh-huh. load off my mind. And, and, and that's how that started. So it was, it's a cool memory. That's a beautiful memory. Oh, my goodness. Another interview I read, you talked about Mel Gibson's movie Signs as inspiring you to write. But more than that, you said that you experienced some kind of feeling that you got from that movie that inspired you. Is there any way you could put that feeling into words? I've attempted to put it into words. And I, as I believe I, I compared it to this, this all encompassing, refreshing waterfall, just coming over me. The way that Mel Gibson movie situation worked out is it's not particularly the, it was a, it was a fun movie. But it wasn't particularly, it's not the movie itself that inspired me, but it was the concept of the story. The um, aliens wanted to take over Earth and everybody here on Earth needed to come together for their own mutual survival. A War of the Worlds type concept. War of the Worlds is a much better story, by the way, than than signs. But uh, I had an idea in my head for a while. And again, I didn't know I wanted to write a book. I just wrote notes on things at times. And I, I had, had an idea where it wasn't a, an aliens coming to, to Earth to take over the Earth. It was, it was what would happen if rivals here on, on Earth, you know, in, our, in our lifetime had to come together for their own mutual survival. And this was written during a period of time where I was working in a lot of gang affiliate neighborhoods. And so I, I, I heard stories and I didn't witness things personally, fortunately, but uh, I know a lot of what was going on in these neighborhoods that, uh, that, I would having to, that I'd have to work in. And it turns out that what I wanted to do is I, I always thought to myself, you know, what happens if like a Bloods versus Crips type thing where something came where they both had to get together for their own mutual survival, which seems impossible as we read day-to-day news on these terrible gang stories. But I, I put it out there. I thought to myself, what happens if? So I then had to come up with a situation or what, what could do that? And then I let my imagination take over and go into a supernatural entity, something that would be unstoppable or both of them. And, they, and that, a, that supernatural entity would be after both of them. And that's where the concept of whole consequence t- took over. And we'll talk a little, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more, uh, more about that later. Um, that feeling, though, as I was reading that and you were talking about that feeling, I think I've had those before and they occur randomly and it's all of a sudden you just, as you expressed it, I think it was beautiful. Like you're being washed with this waterfall, whatever it is. It's just like this whoosh of a, whoa, things are going to be okay. Or I've got this idea or this is remarkable and it's really fleeting. I don't know how long yours lasted, but like for me, it's, it's a really fleeting feeling. It's exhilarating. I may have digressed in answer to your question, because you're absolutely right, Laurel. And in, in answer to your question, what had happened that particular day is I wound up seeing that, that, that movie with my daughter. And I was waiting for her on the corner as she was staring at the movie posters on the wall. And 
being in the landscape business, I had already taken a couple of classes on uh, night classes on landscape design. And I was signed up for a third nighttime landscape design class. And as I'm waiting for my daughter, this is when that feeling comes over me. And I've never had the feeling. I never had it before. I've never had it since. But this sense of, of tranquility, as if that, that final piece of the puzzle fit. And I realized this is what I really want to do. This is something that's really important for me to do. I, I, I get it now. I understand what to make, what's going to make me happy. I went home, called the, night, the, the school, Cal State Northridge, called them, canceled my landscape design class, and signed up for a creative writing class. And it turns out the teacher was wonderful. And uh, I took a second class from her. I started the first book in her first class, finished the book long after her second class ended. But it was the greatest thing that really happened to me and took me, took me out of a period where I was very unhappy. I was having, going through some emotional problems inside my own head uh, that um, were, was unfortunate at the time. And, and now uh, what that book did, it was better than any, any money I could have ever spent on therapy. It was, uh, it, it was, it was so invigorating for me and really made me feel like I got my, my, my self-esteem back, like I got something good for me that really was important. I was going to say writing is therapeutic. It absolutely is. That's my journal from high school. Oh my gosh. When I, I still have them, when I go back and read through them, I think, Ooh, that was a good free shrink because you know, you'd either be happy and in love and the writing would be beautiful or you'd be doing, you know, damage to the pages with your pen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Well, Thank you for expressing that feeling, that wishing feeling, because I've had it myself and it's wonderful. Now, you are a Sunday writer, which first of all blows me away because in order to complete two books in how many years? Started my first book in 2002. All right. And only writing on Sundays, that is a tremendous accomplishment and I don't think I could do it. So describe to me your Sunday, Sunday writing routine. The Sunday book, <laughs> the Sunday book was You Say Goodbye. And we'll talk about that. You, the Poe Consequence, that's, that was written at all times of the day and night, during work, not during work. That was then. Okay. But You Say Goodbye, it turns out that when I started writing You Say Goodbye, my work responsibilities had increased much more than the days of my first book. And between lack of time and lack of energy, it was hard for me to be able to do what I did with my first book. Monday through Friday, like so many people, we work hard. At nighttime, we're tired. Um, we also have lives. And it's, it's, it was difficult to devote myself to as much time as I would like to have. So that really left Sunday. But it was a commitment, Laura. I mean, and, and authors know this. When you have something to say, you find the time. And uh, I wouldn't recommend it as a, as, a, uh, as a way for most writers to get through the, a book. It was hard. And it was just something, though, that I really wanted to do. And, but once, I, once those Sundays came, I was able to pick up where I left off. Because the, the story concept was always in my head. I, 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 knew what I, I knew I had a focus. I knew what I wanted to do. It's just I didn't really have as much time to do it. But Sundays was my day. And that's where I found the time to do it. It took years. Yes, it did. It took years to get done, but it got done. Boy, I don't think I could have done it that way. Oh, gosh. What's your opinion on writer's block? I have a very strong opinion, but what's your opinion? I respect the concept of writer's block because so many writers have gone through it. But I, I, for me, I would say that for a fictional story, what I have found that limits the the time with writer's block is to always remember that you get a chance to go into a fictional world that you've created and if you can remember to enjoy that concept as if you've been given a pass to some other world and it's yours of the making then revel in that take take advantage of it and live it and go inside your head and and then all of a sudden, find yourself back in that, that fantasy world that you're creating. That kind of, to me, helps limit the concept of 
what am I going to say now? Or how am I going to approach this? Let it just come to you. Let it come to you. So that for me is, has helped. It's helped keep things under control in that, in that sense. Good. No, my opinion, if anyone cares, is that, you know, you might be blocked on a certain scene on a certain, what am I, what's my character going to say next? But you can always write something, even if it's a, you jump ahead in a book, or even if it's a, you, you know, you look at, you look at this pen and you wonder where it's been or anything else. You could write something and, um, or, or take your dog for a walk, do a uh, little exercise, do 10, do 10 push-ups. <laughs> Get blood going to your brain because sometimes we sit too long. My dog probably likes when I write books because I do take him for plenty of walks during those periods of time. Yes, that's yeah, he's probably pushing me to write another book now. Right? It's very, yeah, it's very helpful. And, and I take my phone too when I'm walking because you get ideas at all times of the day and night, as you know. And there's a little record thing on there where just record an idea because. If you don't record, if you don't capture it, they disappear sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whether it be a phone, whether it be notepads by your bedside, whether no, in, inside your car, always, always, because thoughts hit you at any time. Or you may happen to observe something that kicks in an idea, and you do not want to forget that. Yeah, I learned that from my poetry days, lyric writing days. You just have to write things down because they don't necessarily stay in your head. Or you're in a coffee shop and you hear someone say something ridiculous or funny or whatever. And yeah, you can use it somewhere. Keith, since you're not going to sing with me this time, would you you uh, read a passage from You Say Goodbye? I would like that very much. Thank you. To my listeners out there today, I hope you're enjoying my episode with Keith Steinbaum, author of You Say Goodbye and also of The Poe Consequence. I hope you might consider becoming a patron of the Alligator Preserves podcast as I am a one-woman operation, and your contribution each month will help me find and share stories that will continue to entertain and inform you. Go to patreon.com slash alligatorpreserves to see how you can support my work. And now, stay tuned as Keith reads us a passage from You Say Goodbye. To preface what I'm about to read, John Hightower is the protagonist in my story. He was a one-hit wonder rock star, and this scene that I'm about to read takes place about 25% into the story. What happens before this, and I'm not giving too much away, is Sean's girlfriend was murdered in a terrible way, and uh, it sends him reeling. And he has even has thoughts of suicide, but it didn't, fortunately, it didn't turn out that way. But the detective that came to his house, whose name is Ray Maldonado, he winds up getting in touch with Sean because he wants to meet him down at the police station because he told Sean that he has something very important to talk to him about and that Sean may be able to help him and help the, the, the police perhaps find who the murderer is. And the murderer is um don't tell us who done it part of the story so this is where sean goes and meets detective maldonado at the police station so this is maldonado here we go he says before i show you what's in here referring to an envelope that's on the table i'm going to tell you something about miss franklin's murderer that we've known from the beginning rolling his tongue around the inside of his mouth he looked away for a moment before returning his attention to sean Do you recall the writing on the two pieces of paper above the headboard? Sean had tried his best to tear the grotesque image of Marissa's blood-soaked face from his mind. He rubbed his hand across his eyes as if to erase the visual and focused on the answer to the question. Yes, he remembered what was there. One paper had hello written on it, he answered. The other one, goodbye. You're a rock and roll guy, Maldonado said. Do those two words sound familiar? Only if you're talking about the Beatles song, he answered. Maldonado nodded. That's exactly what I'm talking about, Sean. The same man who raped and murdered Miss Franklin has done the identical thing seven other times, dating back six years. He's a serial killer the press has dubbed the Beatles song murderer. You ever heard of him? Sean stared, dumbfounded and silent for several moments before shaking his head. He's left pieces of paper with the name of a different Beatles song every time. The first killing we know of occurred in Bakersfield, the second about 30 miles north in a town called Delano and the last six in different parts of northern and western L.A. County. 
Sean found great difficulty registering this information. His mind's defense system erecting an impenetrable wall resistant to the bacterial blather of outlandish information. The news of a serial killer raping and killing the woman he loved left him numb. These kinds of things happen to other people, not to Marissa. The Beatles song Murderer, he muttered under his breath. I can't believe it. You told us that you let yourself in with your key that night. Is that correct? Yes. You also told us that you didn't open the sliding door to her balcony. Sean nodded as he stared at the side of his white styrofoam cup. That's right. Maldonado tilted back in his chair and folded his hands. Miss Franklin's apartment only had two ways of getting inside. For someone to have come in through the balcony, they'd have to climb 20 feet above the garage. The risk of being spotted would have been pretty high. Even so, we searched the area. No crushed shrubbery, no scuff marks on the wall, no footprints on the ground, nothing. The fact that Miss Franklin's front door was locked and her house key was missing from her keychain leads us to believe that the killer left the balcony door open as a decoy and and he not only exited through the front door, he entered through the front door as well. Entered, Sean said. You mean the killer stole her house key and got in that way? That's a possibility, Maldonado replied. Or perhaps he somehow obtained a copy of her house key and let himself in. Sean pursed his lips, adamant in his belief that Marissa's street smarts invalidated that possibility. I don't believe she'd let that happen, he told him. Marissa lived on her own her entire adult life and didn't make those kinds of mistakes. Maldonado raised his cat fur eyebrows, the points triangulating like two ascending birds on a collision course. Okay, fine, he said. Let's say you're right. That leaves only one other possibility I can think of, and it's the reason I called you here. Sean remained silent, confused and unable to think of any other logical answers. Maldonado manipulated the envelope on the table, feeling the contents inside. He sat up in his chair again, downed a large swallow of his coffee, and hurriedly rubbed his hands across his mouth. Looking at Sean, he held his gaze for several moments before speaking. I think Miss Franklin's murder let the killer in because she knew him. The idea took a while to sink in, working its way through the speculation of likelihood into a dark hole of disbelief. What are you getting at, Sean asked, that Marissa might have been friendly with this sick asshole? Maldonado moved his thumbnail along the side of his cup before answering. Not just her, Sean, he replied. You too. (sighs) Thank you. I apologize for the swear word, Laura. I, I was thinking, should I say it or not? And I decided to stay credible to the story. You, you got to say it. What's a swear word anymore anyway? I think. True. Yeah. True. yeah. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't know who done it until I got very near the end. So I don't think you're going to know listeners out there who done it either, but it really is a fascinating story within a story. Uh, you've got a little bit of everything in there. You've got some humor. You've got some some of your personal lyrics. Yes. And, and you used some of your lyrics. Why? Well, I found out after writing the story and actually sending it to an editor before I tried to get the, the book published that I did not know that uh, if you were going to use lyrics from artists, you need to get the publisher's permission. <laughs> And there's, as you read the book, as you know, there's very important scenes in the story where Sean refers to lyrics for particular events that are going on, these experiences that he's going through. And originally the concept was, as he was going to be referring to lyrics and think about lyrics of artists that he really respected and appreciated because he is very well known. He knows a lot about music and about the different eras of music. But once I found that out, uh, I, I went through an initial few minutes of panic and then realized, wait a second, I was a lyricist for many years. I can write lyrics and I'm proud of the lyrics I write and I'm going to take that challenge on and make Sean Hightower's the lyricist for scenes that he, he experiences. And as it turns out, it was the best thing for me that could have happened to the book because as the writer of the story, it makes me more connected to the, to the protagonist and gives me a chance to, to work my lyrical chops again after many years. And I'm, I'm proud of, of the lyrics that are in the book. I am. Right. Well, before we run out of time, I don't want to run out of time, but I want to talk about the Poe Consequence, a supernatural revenge story. It was listed in Kirkus Reviews uh, under the Best Books of 2015 and awarded the Supernatural Thriller of the Year 
by the literary website booksandauthors.net. So congratulations on that. So when I knew that we were going to have this visit, I wanted to read your work and I went to look at getting a copy of The Poe Consequence. And I remember sending you an email with a, a screenshot of the price of the book. And I think the price of the book at the time was about $359. <laughs> and and I asked you, why so expensive? <laughs> you made a comment about, well, it comes with a Rolex watch. And so I decided I would take two. And since then, I think I think yesterday it was up to $649 or something. So my first question is, what is up with Amazon? No, I, no my question to the world is what is up with Amazon. I, I don't understand it. And I, what can I say? I don't, I don't get it. This is not the original version of, of the Bible. Okay. Perhaps then maybe, you know, $600 or, or more might be the, the asking price, but I don't get it. I truly wish I wrote a book that was worth that much money. I don't think it's going to happen. But, but let's not discourage potential purchasers from going and finding the Poe consequence online and, and perhaps spending $649 on a copy because it's going to be different. You're going to re-release this book through Black Opal Publishers. When? Uh, I moved the the, the uh, release date back. It was going to be August of this year, but I asked to have it released in March of two, of 2020 because I want to focus this whole year on the promotion of You Say Goodbye. So March of, two, of 2020, it'll be re-released. All righty. So I ended up not buying the $600 version, but downloading an Audible version of it and really enjoyed it. And the narrator is excellent, by the way. I'm not sure where you found him, but he was excellent. His name is Dwight Kuhlman. He's great. Um, Dwight, his last name is K-U-H-L-M-A-N, if you want to look him up. And yes, I, I think he's got this great baritone voice and he's very good at what he does. He did a great job. So just a few points on on that book, which you know, you'll you'll get eventually. You use a fish tank analogy when you're talking about the idea of different social backgrounds, people working together. And I thought that was, I thought that was really lovely. This is a really complex book. And let me, this might be kind of a difficult question, but like from a white girl's perspective, and I'm a white girl for anyone who might not know that, the dialogue between the Lobos and the Diablos, the two gangs, from my perspective, it was very believable, and it rose above mere stereotype. So my question is, have you had any backlash from Hispanic readers? No, I've not had backlash from Hispanic readers. But to be honest with you, I don't know if Hispanic readers have read it to a point that they didn't feel like commenting and they didn't like it, or whether they thought it was pretty good. I work with Latinos 100% in the industry that I work in. And I did discuss with one of my supervisors who would have given his opinion if he did not think some of this stuff was, was believable. He didn't, he didn't comment in the negative. I have had a couple of backlashes from white, white book reviewers who, fair or not, thought that uh, I shouldn't be trying to implement language, being a white person myself, for how Latino gangs speak. Now, that being said, I'm not going to say that's completely unfair. Not at all. But as a writer, I was aware of that. I was aware of that. Uh, no, I was never in an East L.A. gang, Laurel. And I, you know, never, never was. Um, but I will say that you know, I did research on language, on on, on names that they give for certain things, whether it be snitches or weapons or clothes. I tried to do as good a job as I could putting myself in that situation. But admittedly, look, without actually having walked the walk, I can't say that, you know, that people aren't necessarily going to think that it's credible. It's not 100% credible, but I did the best I could. And that's all I can say I can ever do with any writing is you do the best you could. Try and do some research. Try and do the best you can putting yourself in someone else's shoes and whatever happens, happens. And however people take it, they take it. Right. I mean, the whole idea of social appropriation anymore, I don't know. 
some people say, as a woman, I can't, you know, how did I, how do you get into the head of a teenage boy? Of course, my answer to that is it's really easy. <laughs> but writers, that we do. We get into other people's heads. We do the research. We do the best we can. And from my perspective, it was very credible. So, so there. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Tell me about your experience with Edgar Allan Poe, your own personal, and why you wanted to bring him in. You brought the Beatles in to you say goodbye. And why do you use, why do you use Poe? I've always been a big Edgar Allan Poe fan, and in in the story, you, you in the story, I even talk about uh, it's, it was just, it's what happened to me. I I got introduced to Poe as a kid, watching Vincent Price movies, uh, you know, The Raven and, the, and the Pit and the Pendulum, and so that introduced me to Poe. And then as I grew older, I started writing, reading Edgar Allan Poe stories. He's tough. Uh, he, yeah, he he was brilliant, and he was in you know it's not light reading. It certainly isn't, but his poetry and and, and some of the stories, uh, I've read a good amount of them. Certainly not all of them, but enough that I really became a fan of his. All right. Um, and 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 a funny story is it's, it's uh, in the book. There the, there's a character Warren Palmer, and he was who's a big big. He was actually an English professor, and he, he they call him his, his students call him Professor Palmer because he's such a love lover of Edgar Allan Poe. And they you know he, there's a backstory on him where he talks about Telltale Heart was his favorite, and that he has a professor that told him that when he recited the Telltale Heart, it was the best version of the Telltale Heart he'd ever seen a college student do. That was in a way semi autobiographical because when I was in college. I wound up reciting the Raven to the class, and you know you, you were allowed to use note cards at the time, so you wouldn't have to memorize the whole thing. But I memorized it to a point where I didn't even have to look at my note cards. And at the end of the recitation of the Raven, he sell, he tells the the class that was the best interpretation of the Raven I've ever heard a college student do. So I took that little piece of, of nonfiction and put it into my fictional story. Congratulations! <laughs> it was a, it's a really unique way of having a murder mystery. I mean, so you know who the murderer is, but it was still really intriguing to find out how each of the murders would take place and how each of the victims would respond once they had an idea of what was going on. So that was, like I said, unique, very, very different. Uh, Madam Sibelia, do you have any personal experience with tarot card readers? Or do you, or is that a question yes. I shouldn't ask? No, no. <laughs> no I've I've uh, no, I've had a I've had a reading before, and I won't say changed my life necessarily, but um, I I do like the the idea of tarot card reading. I like the idea of psychics. My gosh, yeah, I live in L.A. It seems every other block there, there's a psychic on the on a street corner. Um, they're obviously very popular. People go to them. I mean, these people have to pay uh, rent. So they must make enough money to pay the rent. And they've been there for years. So no doubt there's a lot of people that like to have their palms read or have their tarot cards read. So um, I've had mine done, but, um, you know, like I said, it didn't necessarily change my life. You don't have to give me any other details. Keith? It would be a great any- story. It would be a great story if I told you that's how I met my wife. But no, that's not how it happened. <laughs> Keith, do you um, have any shout outs you want to give to... Any individuals or other than Black Opal Books who have published your book? Well, hello to everyone out there in the Black Opal Books author community. We're all we become very close. I joined them in January of 2018, and uh, we communicate a lot with each other. So as I, I got introduced to you through interviews that you had with, with, uh, with Howard and Kathleen, and, and, and you mentioned Sarah Lynn, so I'm very happy to have uh, now joined, joined them with you. I have to shout out to my wife, Danielle, my, my daughter, Adrienne, my son, Justin, and um, to all of my friends and people out there that uh, would ever want to read my books or have read my books. I thank you very much, and uh, hopefully we'll meet again in the future. And leave reviews, right? I mean, we as indie authors often have to – it's like pulling teeth, right? It's like if you read my book and you like it, would you please leave a review? And it doesn't have to be a, a book review, it doesn't have to be the whole thing. It can be a sentence or, or two about what you liked about the book. So if you like anyone's books, 
particularly Keith Steinbaum's books, leave a review on Amazon and that would be wonderful. Keith, how can people contact you? You can go to my website is keithsteinbaum.com. I just had that done by a web designer and he's great and I'm really proud of it. It it shows uh, links to all things about both books, a bit about me. I have a blog section there. And by the way, please, anybody who wants to contact me and ask a question or give a comment or tell me something, I would certainly love to be able to respond. So that's one way to reach me. Uh, my Facebook is, is Keith Steinbaum dash author. So that's where you can find me on Facebook. At Twitter it is at Keith Steinbaum. So as long as you know my name, you can find me pretty easily. All right. And I will have links to all these things on my website at ledvalaurel.com. Keith, do you eat toast in the morning ever? I do. Yes, I do. Do you use any kind of preserves? Yes, I do. What's your favorite? Uh, I'm a big boysenberry and a big blueberry fan. Boysenberry and blueberry. I forgot to ask Sarilyn that question, and she and she said that was the one question that she was really prepared to answer. <laughs> so I have to do a little addendum to her interview. Hers was apricot, although she also said that sometimes she calls it apricot. It tastes the same. Keith Steinbaum, author of You Say Goodbye, which is available now on Amazon, and The Poe Consequence, which will be out in 2020, if that's actually a year that's going to happen. Check them out, and thank you for spending time with Alligator Preserves. Laurel, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Best best to you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You can find today's show notes with links and photos on my website at letthelaurel.com. I would love to hear from you. Email me at laurel at strackpress.com and follow me on Twitter at letthelaurel. If you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts to keep up with my latest episodes and tell your friends about it. I hope you'll help support Alligator Preserves on Patreon. Check out the rewards you'll receive and join me next time when I'll talk about something completely different. Until then, you say goodbye and I say hello. (laughs) Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com. <laughs>